The book of Galatians chapter 1, first chapter of the book of Galatians, there we go. Galatians chapter 1. I want to read something to you that uh, I got an interesting card uh, from someone. Um, you know, it's, it's a thank you card for the ministry here. And uh, this girl says, when I was 16 years old, my parents were divorced. And it turned my whole world upside down. I stopped going to church and I got further from God as the years went by. I started dating a boy. Um, and this guy wasn't a Christian. She mentions that he's uh, from uh, another church that she calls a cult. We dated all through high school, and uh, we were married four and a half years ago. The last year and a half, I've gotten my life right with God, and I realized what a huge mistake I made. I've asked forgiveness from God, and I know he has forgiven me. My husband wants nothing to do with God. Um, or even his own church. I am so thankful that he does not stop me from taking our four-year-old son to church. We attend your Saturday night service, and I wanted to share a blessing that happened a couple of weeks ago. We came home from church on Saturday, and my son wanted to read some tracts that were given to him in his toddler class. After reading the tracts, he chose to accept Jesus into his heart. It was all that I could do to not do do not to pick him up and jump around. It was all the encouragement I needed to keep praying for my husband and to continue to serve the Lord. What a great testimony that is. And there's no greater joy for a parent than to know that their own children are are following the Lord at whatever age. Now that 4-year-old has a testimony and each one of us, if we are Christians, have some kind of testimony. And I would recommend that you learn to give your testimony. Learn to say it in a few sentences. Don't ramble on in hours. Just a succinct little way of talking about your past, what you used to be like, how you changed when you met Christ, and what things have changed about your life since you came to know him. And uh, you can always use that. It's a powerful, powerful tool. After all, it's your own story of salvation that often is the link that brings people to know Christ. A lot of times, you know, you can go through all of the apologetic stuff, but they want to know how it changed your life and uh, gives them hope for their own life. I remember somebody came up to me one time and was, um, was wanting to be argumentative. This was when I was living as a single guy in California. He said, well, how do you know you were saved? And I said, because I was there the night it happened. And you can ask anybody who knew me and see if I've changed it all. Just go ask them. And that should always be your testimony. Go ask people who know me. See if I've changed. And so we come to Paul the Apostle. And tonight we're going to look at a, a little sketch of his autobiography given by him about how he changed and how the gospel changes. One of my favorite stories is from the 1700s about a young man who was raised in a Christian home but his parents died when he was quite young. In fact, when he was seven years old, John Newton's mother died, and he was left to be raised by other relatives. Well, it was his dream to be a sailor, and eventually, because of the fallout of having parents die and not having the same spiritual upbringing being shuffled from place to place, he joined the British Navy and got into trouble. He later on went AWOL. Uh, he got involved in the slave trade, the Portuguese slave trade, 
and eventually became almost a slave himself to the alcohol that he gave himself over to. He used to pride himself that he could cuss, that he could swear for an hour straight without repeating himself on a single word. I, I've never met anybody who could do that, and I really don't care to ever meet somebody who could do that, but that was his boast. Years later, after a very difficult set of circumstances, he went back to England and he gave his life to Christ. He remembered the Bible verses planted in his heart by his mother. And after he came to know the Lord, his testimony was written in a song that he wrote about himself. The song, of course, says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's true conversion. He realized who he was. He was honest about his past. And he talked about, I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. It's a beautiful song, and we still love to sing it. Paul the Apostle, sort of like John Newton, but in a different way, in a religious way, was a radical. What I mean by a radical is that, do you ever read of Paul doing anything half-hearted? Whether he was... Uh, Jewish rabbi or a converted believer. Whatever he did, he did it full bore, a hundred percent. I like John Wesley, what he said. He goes, I like my religion like my tea. I want it hot. How hot are you? Are you hot for the Lord? Are you lukewarm? You know, Jesus said, I want you hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Well, Paul was a hot Jewish believer, or a Jewish man, and then a very hot or radical Christian believer. He was a persecutor. He became a preacher. Now, if you have a bulletin tonight, we made a typographical error. It's not prosecutor. It's persecutor. He never practiced law. This guy persecuted Christians, and he turned from persecutor into a preacher later on. Radicals are hard to understand people. They can be dangerous people. They can be very unpredictable people, but they can also be very refreshing people. They don't like the status quo. They don't like the mold. Whatever they're into, they give themselves to wholeheartedly. Now, Paul, because of the way he lived, had many friends. But he also had many enemies, and we've noted in our first study, which was 35 years ago, I believe, when we started Galatians, I've been gone so many weeks, that there was a group of people called Judaizers, Judaizers. These Judaizers were people who claimed to be believers in Christ, they followed the Jewish Messiah, but they were very legalistic. In fact, they believed that salvation was granted to only one group, and one group alone, their group. Know any people like that? I meet them all the time. You have to belong to our group. You have to be baptized by our church. You have to keep our rules. And Paul had to put up with the nonsense of these legalistic people who didn't go out and start their own churches. This is how they operated. They were like leeches. They were like mistletoe that had to grow on another tree. They went into churches already established by Paul and started undermining the believers by casting doubts on Paul's authority as an apostle. 
He's not a real apostle. He wasn't one of, one of the original 12. In fact, he persecuted the church. What right does he have to come and start a church? But they wouldn't start their own church. They would just piggyback on Paul's ministry. And so, we're going to start in verse 10 tonight, and we're going to look at three sections of his life. It's like Paul is behind the camera, and he moves the camera to three special sections. First of all, when he was a persecutor. In verse 10, For now do I persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He's speaking of his B.C. days, before Christ. You remember your B.C. days? Remember how you used to be? You ever stay in touch with that? You ever stay in touch with people who remember you from those days? I remember my B.C. days. They were my high school days, basically. I came to Christ shortly after graduating from high school. And I remember treating Christians in high school like they were idiots. That's because I thought they were. And I told them they were. Uh, Dave McCachron was the guy, the first guy in our high school that became a Christian. And he was so zealous and we used to mock him and laugh at him and do everything we could to make him look foolish. And then I remember one of his first converts was a French exchange student named Olivier Delage. He came from France, came to California, was studying, gave his life to Christ. And I remember standing out in front of our high school for an hour, waiting for my father to pick me up. He was always late, so I knew I had about an hour. And I spent an hour trying to dismantle his Christian faith, telling him that he shouldn't do this, it was a lame decision, be content with who you were, don't get into this stuff, it's just a fad, it's just a phase, it's this emotionalism, and I tried really hard to talk him out of being a Christian. Now, as soon as I became converted, I wanted to find him and others as soon as I could to tell them, I'm sorry, I was the idiot, please forgive me and share my own testimony with them. What is also interesting about my high school is my high school reunion, and I'm not going to say which one, because um, there's been several. In fact, there's another one coming up this next summer. And um, it's my 30th, by the way, 30 years since high school. And, um, but my first high school reunion, I saw a guy who had this big smile on his face. That's why I didn't recognize him at first, because he was always mad. And he had this big smile. His name was John Booth. And John was a popular football player at one time. And he came up to me and gave me his testimony. I've become a Christian. Now, I was floored by this, because if there was one guy in high school that I said would not come to Christ, it was John Booth. Not John Wilkes Booth. I don't go that far back. John Booth, the football player. And he says, Skip, I I've given my life to Christ. I said, 
you're kidding. And then I told him that I've given my life to Christ and that I was a pastor. And of course he said, you're kidding. I think if Paul the Apostle would have had a high school annual and would have had a section in it most unlikely to convert, his picture would have been there. Because this guy hated Christians. He had an interesting profile. In verse 13, you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, or my life as a practicing Jew, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, meaning violently, and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I have always admired Paul. I've admired him for his background, the unique blend of who he was that God used to get the gospel out. First of all, he was a Greek. That is, he knew the Greek culture, born in Tarsus. He knew the Greek culture very, very well. It was, uh, Tarsus was one of the three ancient cities that had the best schools, the best universities, Athens, Alexandria, Egypt, and Tarsus of Cilicia were sort of like the Princeton and Yale and Harvard of the ancient world. And so Paul was very well schooled in Greek culture, so much so that he can stand in front of Athens and quote Greek authors without any notes at all because he was well read and immersed in the Greek culture. Then also he was unique because he was raised in a Greek culture of Tarsus. He had a Roman citizenship which came in handy sometimes, like the time they were going to beat him up in Jerusalem. And he said, no, wait a minute. You boys can't beat up a Roman citizen. That was illegal. And they said, you're a Roman? He goes, yep, I was born a citizen. So on a secular side, he knew Greek culture, Greek language. He was a Roman citizen and knew, knew Roman law and Roman culture. On the spiritual side of things, he was very, very religious being Jewish, as he mentions here. When he was 13 years of age, his father sent him to Jerusalem to study under one of the great mentors, Gamaliel, who was highly esteemed as a Jewish rabbi. And Gamaliel was one of the guys who spoke out against Christians as soon as the church started really taking off in Jerusalem. And Paul, or Saul as he was known then, Saul of Tarsus, became very much like his mentor and started fomenting this hatred toward the church. Now let me just tell you a little bit about his upbringing in Judaism. Because he studied under Gamaliel and studied the law to be a rabbi, he committed to memory large, large sections of Old Testament scripture. Large sections he'd memorize, whole areas of prophecy, whole areas of the law. They would sit him in question and answer sessions. And at first he would just listen to the answers given by the great rabbis. Then later on, he would have to be the one giving the answers to the questions that came in. So he was very, very well versed in Judaism. And because of these two worlds he was involved in, secular side and the spiritual side, Greek and Roman culture and language and Judaism, 
Because of that, he could say, to the Jew, I become as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are without the law, I become like those without the law, that I might win those. In other words, he was just, and he was like the Renaissance man of 2,000 years ago and, and could relate to so many people on so many different levels. Now notice here, he mentions in verse 14, the traditions, he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. What he means by that is the oral law. Some of you know that in Judaism, the oral law, not the written law of Moses from the Bible, the oral law is elevated to the status of the Bible. The traditions that are passed down, the commentaries of the rabbis and the fathers were so esteemed and memorized that that is tantamount to scripture. The Jews call this the halakha, and he was zealous for the halakha, the traditions. If he would have been um, in Fiddler on the Roof, he would have easily sung the song, traditions. He loved the traditions of his fathers. It is his religious zeal, God bless you, that made him a persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul made havoc of the church. His biography goes on to say he went in Jerusalem from house to house to find people who were calling on Jesus Christ, got them arrested, forced them to blaspheme, and he was so zealous that he decided, I'm going to go to every place outside of Jerusalem, find out where there are Christians there, and I'm going to stop this movement. And so he went 160 miles north to Damascus. And his whole uh, desire was to destroy or to stamp out once and for all the church of Jesus Christ. Of course, he was very unsuccessful, wasn't he? Because he met Jesus along the way, who gave him a run for his money. And he was converted there on the Damascus road. There's one other place that Paul gives his background. That's Philippians in the third chapter, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. And concerning righteousness, which comes by keeping the law, I was blameless. It's an amazing statement. If you know anything about Judaism, to say concerning righteousness which comes by keeping the law, I was blameless. I kept every single law that I knew there was to keep. A very strict, legalistic adherent to the law of Moses. Now, I just want to make comment on something before we move on. Saul of Tarsus believed sincerely that what he was doing was right. He thought that it was right before God to stop this cult called Christianity. He would be like the apologist, you know, Christian busters. There's a Christian in the neighborhood. Who are you going to call? Saul of Tarsus. He'll put it out for you. 
And he believed, sorry about that, he believed <laughs> that what he was doing was right, which all goes to show you, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. And he was the first to admit he was sincerely wrong. Now every now and then somebody will say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Well, Adolf Hitler was sincere. Joseph Stalin was sincere. The gentlemen who flew planes into the World Trade Center were sincere about their religious convictions. I wish, wish Christians were as sincere to the point of sharing their faith with people. But you can be very sincere and be wrong, sincerely misled and wrong, as Paul was. In fact, he spoke of having a zeal not according to knowledge. Now look in verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, or through his grace, to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for a little over two weeks, 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. And afterwards, I went to the region of Syria and Cilicia. He's describing his conversion. This is where he moves from persecutor to, shall we say, proselyte or somebody who is a convert to Christianity. One of the, the best days of the church, one of the pivotal moments of church history, is when this rabbi saw the light and saw the grace of Christ extended to him, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, when did it begin? Well, it began, according to Paul, before he was born. Notice, when it pleased God, verse 15, who separated me from my mother's womb. It's a difficult thing to believe, but you and I were elected or chosen before we were born. Now, this bothers lots of people. They wrestle with the doctrine of election versus free will. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about it. He said, it's a good thing he chose me before I was born. He probably never would have picked me after I was born. <laughs> he separated me from my mother's womb. Salvation began long before Paul ever hit earth by election. It's like Jacob. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God could select Jacob and prophesy that the older will serve the younger. Paul builds a whole point and premise on that in Romans chapter 9. Or Jeremiah. When God came to Jeremiah and said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I chose you. I ordained you to be a prophet among the nations. When did your salvation begin? Oh, it began on February. No, it began before you were born. God knew in advance and separated you from your mother's womb. Now, 
from our point of view, that's heaven's point of view, from earthly point of view, it began probably when Stephen was martyred. And Saul was there going, yeah, man, kill him. And he took the clothes of those who were killing him, and he consented unto his death. And I think in watching Stephen die and seeing a man go into heaven so gracefully, I think that made a great impact on his life. I think it really bothered him. Because as he's on the Damascus road and he sees that light and he gets knocked back on the ground and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, this got his attention. You know, some people are stubborn. And they require more severe means. You know, I, I, I know people who say, I never really had a dramatic conversion. I just heard the gospel and I came to Christ. Good for you. You're smart. And sometimes we look at other people's dramatic conversion. I was a drug addict. I was a thief. I was a murderer. We think, that's what we want. Why? Why go through all of that to find the truth? I remember a kid I spiritually grew up with. He was a young man. I was saved when I was 18. He was a young boy raised in a Christian home, and he heard our testimonies, and he felt cheated. He thought, you know, I don't have a dramatic testimony like that. I was a good kid raised in a Christian home. I think I need to go out, he said, and sin a little bit <laughs> so that I can have a great testimony. I said, Johnny, you have the best testimony of all of us. Your testimony is the ability of God to keep a person through his whole life. That's the greatest testimony anyone can have. Some people are stubborn. Like the farmer who had the donkey who wouldn't pull the plow. He wouldn't budge. Farmer tried everything. His neighbor saw him and he said, I think I can help. The neighbor took a two-by-four and clobbered the donkey over the head as hard as he could. Donkey got startled and started to move. Simple, soft command. Giddy up. The donkey moved. The farmer said, you know, I tried that. Why didn't it work for me? The neighbor said, well, first you got to get his attention. First, God had to get Saul's attention. And the attention was, of course, flat on his back, seeing this bright light, hearing a voice from heaven. And he was blinded for a few days. He went through all of that misery. But there on the Damascus Road, in a moment... He called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not necessarily a long, drawn-out process. If you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth, Paul said, you shall be saved. And I think he was saved when he said, who are you, Lord? And then what do you want me to do? He surrendered himself in that short conversation to the will of God. This bothers some people. This bothers people that you could change so quickly, so instantly. They read Acts chapter 9 about Saul's conversion. They go, I don't know if Paul was really saved then. I think he was saved then. I think that got his attention and he called on the name of the Lord and he was saved. He believed in his heart. He confessed with his mouth because then he got his commission from Ananias at the end of that chapter to go and be an apostle. 
to the Gentiles before the children of Israel and before kings. But he didn't fill out a church membership card. He's got to do something. It's the same people who have a problem with the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus said. But he didn't do anything. That's the point. Jesus did it. Salvation is a gift. You receive it. Now, if you have truly received it and truly been converted, you'll change. But you don't change first and then, okay, well, now you're converted. I used to have problems with this myself. I, I openly confess. It was a Saturday afternoon, and my friend Gino was talking me into smoking a lid of marijuana, pressing me, evangelizing me. This marijuana can change your life. And so I believed. The very next afternoon, see that night he left after that and went to a church, heard a musical band, gave his life to Christ at the altar call, came back Sunday, Sunday afternoon, I go over to his house again and he goes, you need Christ. You need to get saved. And I went, what? Yeah, man, I got saved last night. And I, I said to him, nobody can change that quickly. You don't just preach marijuana one day and then preach Jesus the next day. Are you a nut? And I got mad at him. And I grabbed him by his collar. And I pushed him up against the wall and I said, I don't ever want to hear you tell me about God again. Okay. I just couldn't fathom that somebody could change that instantly. But it can happen. It can happen tonight for some of you who have never done that. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Christianity, for Paul, for Gino, for me, for anybody, is not a slight adjustment. I'm making a slight adjustment in my lifestyle. That's not Christianity. Christianity is conversion. Jesus called it, you must be born again. Peter said in Acts, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In fact, it was so radical, a conversion, that his name even changed not soon after. He went from Saul of Tarsus, was his Jewish name, named after the tribe of Benjamin leader, King Saul, to Paul the Apostle. Paul means tiny, small. Now, history tells us he was a short guy with a hooked nose and knit eyebrows and a bald head, but I don't think he called himself that because he was short in stature as much as he was humble before God. I'm not the great Saul of Tarsus. I'm just little old me, Paul. A radical conversion. Who in your life in your mind right now, can you think of that you consider beyond reach? Oh, he'll never, ever, ever darken the door of a church. He'll never believe in Christ. Don't be so sure. Famous last words for a lot of people. I'll never become a Christian. That's what I told my friend. I'll never do that. Because after all, I already am a Christian. That's what I told Gino when he said, you need to get saved. 
You're talking to me. I've been a Christian all my life. That's how blind I was. I needed a conversion. I remember how shocked I was when I was preaching in New York City one night in Manhattan. And an elderly gentleman walked in the back of the church, sat down, distinguished looking, had his Bible and had a notebook that was pretty thick and a pencil. And I have never seen anyone take as many notes on a message I preached than that man in my life. Just took notes all night, every little word, hungry. And then he left as soon as the message was over. And so I said to the pastor, tell me about this guy that I saw come in and I described him. And I, he was just into it, nodding his head, and he writing things down. The pastor said, that's John DeLorean. I said, not the John DeLorean who was busted for putting cocaine in his car called the DeLorean, like in the movie Back to the Future. That John DeLorean? Yeah, that's the one. Really? Yeah, he's come to Christ. He comes here regularly. He's really growing in the Lord. And honestly, at first, I was a little skeptical. You've got to be kidding. Everybody says they get saved when they get put in jail, you know. Oh, no, this guy's really grown in the Lord. He's had a true, solid conversion. God separated him from his mother's womb and revealed his son in him. L look at how that's put. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, who called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Do you see that little phrase, to reveal his son in me? When God saves you, it's for a purpose. The purpose is that God might do something inward work in you, change you, change your behavior, change your lifestyle, change your way of thinking, change you from the inside out, reveal over and over more and more, make you more and more like the Son of God himself, to equip you to be a vessel of his to preach the gospel. Don't think salvation ends with, yeah, I want to give my life to Christ. Oh, Jesus, come into my heart. That's a wonderful experience. I'm not knocking that or putting it down at all. I'm encouraging it. However, that is the beginning of a lifelong process of change where you become more like God. Are you more like God today than you were the day you were saved? Are you more kind to your spouse? Do you love Jesus more? Do you love to tell others about him more? Is that change visible? Are you growing in it? You know, when a baby is born, after birth comes growth. Now, I, I think, th this is, this is the, a guy talking, pretty much all babies look alike. At least to me, they do, it's a baby. Now, I know, every mother thinks, oh, no, 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 this baby is the most beautiful baby on the face of the earth ever in history. Okay, great. But it's funny to hear people all disagreeing, boy, it looks just like him. No, 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 it looks just like her. And none of them necessarily agree. The truth is, you really don't see the characteristics of the parents till that child begins to grow. Then they grow more in likeness, like one or both. Spiritually, we're born again. But as we grow, 
we should be taking on the likeness of Jesus Christ, the one we have received as our Savior. Our lives should be more and more where the Son is revealed in us. Now, he says in verse 17, let's finish this up. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Here's a brief chronology of Paul's life after conversion. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Hmm. The most logical thing after a rabbi gets converted to Christianity would be to go to Jerusalem. That's where he came from. You'd think he'd want to get in with Peter, get in with James, get known among the apostles. He didn't do that. He went to Arabia, out to the desert, for three years. Why? Well, we don't know exactly. However, how many years did the other disciples, the apostles, spend with Jesus in training? About three years. Over the period of three years, as they hung out with Jesus, Jesus revealed himself to them. And I think that Paul was wanting to be alone, not hear secondhand from people, not to hear from the apostles themselves, but firsthand from Jesus Christ himself, the direct revelation of Christ, which he said he received what it was like to follow him. Moses went to the desert for 40 years. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness. Paul spent three years out in the desert. We minimize preparation. You know, we think, well, now that I'm saved, I need to be on stage. Now that I'm saved, I need my own ministry in 501c3, my own corporation. No, I just think you need to get alone with God for a while and get nurtured. Sit on the bench, be equipped, be prepared, and let the Lord in his time reveal what he's called you to do. Paul did that. For three years, he hung out in the desert. Then he went back to Damascus. For the second time, he went back to the place that gave him trouble to begin with. In Damascus, it got worse. They tried to kill him. They washed the city walls. During a second visit, he had to get over in a basket over the wall. After he escaped from Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem, not for a long time, just for two weeks. Hangs out with Peter, hangs out with James, the Lord's brother. When he comes to Jerusalem, though, nobody believed he was saved. It says in Acts, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. If Osama bin Laden walked into our service tonight and sat down in the front row, you'd probably be a little nervous. If Saddam Hussein walked in and sat on the opposite end of the aisle, you'd go, uh-oh, something's up. That was the feeling the church in Jerusalem got when they see the guy who used to kill their brothers and sisters try to join the church. It was only when Barnabas said, I can vouch for him, that he was admitted into the fellowship. 
Now, going to Jerusalem, you know, he was in Arabia. He went back to Damascus. Going to Jerusalem was courageous. That was his old stomping grounds. He spent most of his adult life in Jerusalem as a rabbi, among his friends and family. And he was the radical persecutor of the church. Now he's the radical preacher. So he's sort of going back to his, his friends of the previous lifestyle. That's difficult to do. When I was first saved, I went back and spoke to Ray Sanders and Ron Tyrer, my old buddies. They laughed me to scorn. I went back to my old high school. I brought a musical group, set up, and shared the gospel. Didn't go over well. Because I'm on my old stomping grounds. They knew me. Hey, you're the guy. What are you doing with the guitar telling people about Jesus? It just didn't fly well with them. After Jerusalem, he even goes further back into his life, goes back to Tarsus. He says, here's Cilicia. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is where Tarsus was, where he was brought up. His family was there. His former neighbors were there. And I think that is the ultimate test. Before Paul did all of his missionary journeys around the world as the world traveler, this great missionary, he went home to first his own stomping grounds, then his own family and his neighbors. And historians tell us he spent about seven years back in Tarsus before Barnabas called him to Antioch in Acts chapter 11. So 10 years passed between conversion and ministry in being prepared and going back and sharing the gospel with his family. This is a step some people neglect. There's the story of the Queen Mary, that great ship that sailed the seas years ago that had a very unique siren, that it could put out a, a tone that was loud enough for people far away to hear, but people aboard couldn't hear it. They were undisturbed. A lot of people try to live the Christian life that way. They want to herald the gospel overseas and go to the mission field, but neglect home base. Neglect their family, neglect their friends, but they've got this world calling. Well, how does the gospel work at home? Start there. The demon-possessed man whom Jesus healed wanted to follow Jesus all around the region of Israel. And Jesus said, go back home to your friends and family. Tell them the great things that God has done. Now think of it, folks. You picture in your minds... Paul being saved, and immediately he's on stage. No. Three years, Damascus, two weeks in Jerusalem, seven more years in Tarsus, at least ten years of preparation. Don't minimize the days of small beginnings, the days of preparation. There was a mistake and some of us saw it coming in the early 80s when Bob Dylan reportedly went to Ken Gullickson's Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Los Angeles and had a conversion experience. Immediately after Bob Dylan said that he had received Jesus as the Messiah, people tried to get him to get out on stage and preach that to everybody. When he should have just stayed back and been discipled for a number of months and years before hitting the the public square. 
preparation. Let the Lord move. There's a scripture in Jeremiah where God says to Jeremiah, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Seek them not. Make yourself available to the Lord and let him do it. Well, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, did that. He got alone. He was nurtured. He went back to his friends. He went back to his family. And then we conclude the chapter. We'll finish it out with these next three verses. The persecutor turned proselyte turns preacher. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. What a radical change from the guy who persecuted the church to the guy who was the kingpin of the church being persecuted himself. Have you ever met a person who has just a real sweet disposition and you'd never guess how bad they were in the past? Well, like me, for instance. No, I'm just kidding. My, my wife, just this sweet disposition. When I first met her and, and she was a new Christian and just this sweet heart, and she still is, a wonderful, wonderful personality. And when she told me she used to be a bartender, I said, no, you couldn't be. And I even tested her on a couple of drinks, not that I know <laughs> the recipe to them, but she just fired them off. But in a short period of time to see how radically she had changed and the disposition that the Lord had brought into her life was wonderful change. Paul the Apostle was like that. He changed radically. The gospel changed him, and he was endorsed by the church in Jerusalem. The reason Paul writes this, by the way, is to prove to the Judaizers who were going into the church saying, Paul isn't a real apostle, hey, the message I preached is the message that changed my life. And it's the message that the apostles that you recognize in Jerusalem endorsed. And they saw that God is working in me, and they glorified God in me. Now, as we close tonight, I want to issue a warning. Beware of modern-day Judaizers. Modern-day Judaizers. 2,000 years ago, they said, faith in Jesus Christ plus Moses equals salvation. If you want to be saved, you trust Christ, you keep the laws of Moses, and then you'll be saved. Modern-day Judaizers are those who say faith in Christ plus anything else. Believing in Joseph Smith. Being baptized into our church, keeping our rules and regulations. Their message is you can't be saved unless you do these things. And when you preach the gospel of grace... The only thing they can say is, well, we have a new revelation. Beware of the new revelation. Yeah, all the other churches have been wrong until now. God gave us a new revelation. Well, Paul has an answer for that in verse 9. If someone preaches any other gospel than the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. Well, I'm glad he said that. 
I can hide behind his words. The word in Greek, anathema, cursed below the lowest hell. Because apart from faith in Christ, there is no salvation. The Lord wants to have a relationship with you, so much so he's made it easy for you, not for him. Oh, he paid the price. He shed his blood. He suffered so that you could call upon his name, put your faith in him. He would do the saving, and then he would change you. There's nothing you have to do tonight in order to come to Christ. You come to Christ. You are willing to turn to him. The word repent is the idea of turning in, from one direction to another direction to him. And he'll receive you, and he'll take you as you are, and he'll change you. God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. If you come to him, expect radical changes.